This is the third tape in a three-part series by Jim and Daisy Durkin on the subject of marriage, child-raising, and sex. David Zapansky is the narrator. At the beginning of this cassette, Jim and Daisy discuss the sexual relationship between husband and wife. I think there is a basic misconception in people's minds about the nature of sex itself. That somehow it's looked upon as carnal, whereas, let's say, preaching a sermon would be looked upon as spiritual. And it is not proper to look upon sex as carnal. It is merely physical. But along with being physical, it also is spiritual. Because those things which God has placed properly in life, which he has approved, which he has ordained, these things are, in the final analysis, spiritual things, if properly approached. Now, when we take the idea that sex is carnal, we therefore are not able to draw upon the help that is available to us through God. We feel he certainly wouldn't want to hear about us having sex because that's something dirty. Whereas, far from being dirty, it is beautiful and clean and wholesome when it is approached from the right attitude. And the attitude is simply this, that sex is a part of the whole life. It's not a bad part of it. It's not like the super good part of it. It's a part of the whole. Now, there is room in the entire life of the man for everything that God tells him is necessary for him to do. There is time for God. There is time for his wife. There is time for the children. There is time for the job. There is time for sex. There's time for sleep. There's time for thought. There's time for meditation. Unfortunately, because our attitudes are improper or our priorities are wrong, we do not place these in their proper perspective and therefore find right time for them. Then maybe someone has trained us that sex, as I say, is carnal or having time with your children must give way before this or that or the other thing. Whereas it's not a question of this must give way before that or this must give way before the other thing. But rather, finding the way to efficiently make each one work. Now, a very basic thing that has to be built into the thought pattern is what is God's attitude towards sex? Well, because I had a wrong idea toward telling my wife I loved her. I said, well, she knows I love her. I don't have to tell her that. Whereas... It was very important for me to tell her that I loved her. See, and I consider telling your wife you love her a part of the whole love sexual experience. She must be supported in affection. Because I had a wrong idea about that and a wrong idea about sex. Sex was strictly something for my pleasure, and I wanted to have sex and didn't take time to think about her. Therefore, our sexual life was a problem-filled area of our entire experience. Daisy did not want relationships, and she was afraid of going on having child after child after child and did not feel she could handle that or knew how to handle that. And uh, she was not receiving any real fulfillment out of it because she was thinking of life from her point of view and not from other points of view. But as we began to come to this understanding that sex and all of a man or a woman's life, the expression of it, the whole thing is spiritual. My work on a job is spiritual. My preaching is spiritual. Walking with a friend to the store is a spiritual experience. Putting it all in that proper perspective, then sex came to its right place. As we begin to search the Word of God, we find Song of Solomon. That book, frankly, offended me for a number of years. How Solomon, I assume it was him, type of the greater Solomon that was to come, but how he made love to his wife. She responded to his love. The whole book has many sexual overtones in the book and strong implications. That's the thing that's being spoken about. He describes her breasts. He describes her eyes. He describes her neck. He describes her body. And she responds and says she's without strength in his presence. The whole thing has those overtones so indicating from God's point of view, that this is a perfectly good and noble and even holy 
undertaking. I think a lot of it comes into the attitude again that you have on sex. I know as myself, that was something that was never talked in in our home. It was always something that was filthy and dirty and something that you didn't do. And so after Jim and I got married, it was something that when we would go to have sex, I always felt guilty of having sex, even with my husband. So it had to be something that he had patience in working with me on to show me that it was in the Word of God and that God had ordained sexual relationships with the husband and wife. It was something that could be a beautiful experience and also a, an experience that a person could enjoy. And I know I hear people say, well, they they want to enter into it as a spiritual experience or something. But when you realize that everything that you do is spiritual and every move that you make in the move of God is a spiritual experience, you can realize that sex is a spiritual experience, even though maybe you can't feel the real anointing of God or the real blessing of God like you feel other places, but yet... That's not what determines whether something is spiritual or not. So I think that a person has to realize that it's not a carnal experience having the relation that God has ordained, you know, ordained it with Adam and Eve, and it's something that he's ordained down through the years is the sexual relationship that you can have with your husband and, and your wife and enjoy. And, and the guilt feeling needs to be removed, and it can be. By simply believing the Word of God, where it says marriage is honorable in the law, and the bed undefiled. See, it's a very clear thing. The bed is undefiled, provided it's in marriage. Now, once that's clear in people's minds, then they're freed of that guilt complex that goes with sex. Because so much of our sexual experiences before marriage, and God ordains that men should be virgins and women should be virgins. There is no place in the Word of God that men should experience any kind of sex before their wife. Now, unfortunately, this particular generation in which we live in, there is much sexual experimentation, but it works scars into the person which later on has to be worked out. We've dealt with many people who say they tend to compare their present partner with other partners that they have had, and usually the comparison is unfavorable. And that's an unfortunate thing were God intended by people being virgins that their first experience and their lifelong experience, except the wife or husband should pass away, would be that single person. Therefore, they come from no experience of sex. Mother training the daughter, father training the son into a sexual experience which is progressively better, nothing else to compare it with, so it is better and better and better. Whereas the way the world has casual sex relationships, there's unfortunately comparisons to make that have nothing to do with godly married love of a long-range sexual relationship experience, but rather some person starved for sex. They've experienced it illicitly, starved for sex, and along comes some casual liaison, and they experience a happy moment or a fulfilled moment but they forget that the experience ended in sorrow and tragedy and the person walked off and it came to nothing and once again they're alone and starved and hungry. And see. But if you come to a marriage experience with having experienced sex before, then it is a right thing to begin to clear your heart of making those comparisons by understanding that married love is a long-range, godly, holy relationship that encompasses many more things than simple pleasure-seeking. There's also the whole psychic, psychological, mental, comforting area, the protective area, a whole opportunity to serve and give that goes beyond any possibility of merely being a carnal experience. It is not carnal. It is a highly spiritual area of service. Could you discuss the sexual differences between a man and a woman and how their needs and their feelings differ? Yes. The most basic difference, and here again you can see the God-given reason for it, 
The most basic difference is that the man in his younger years has a very great desire for sex, far greater than the average woman does. Now, in this sinful world, there is a very real protective reason for this. It is not that the woman has so much greater self-control. It is simply that she does not desire sex so much. So when the man is aggressively moving toward a sexual experience with this unmarried woman, he does not maybe want to get married at this point, he doesn't see her for anything more than a sexual object by which he can have a time of pleasure from his point of view, she simply does not desire sex that much. Now, maybe she has some desire, but she's in a much better place to say no and to make that no stick. And in making the no stick, in many cases, the man takes another look at the woman and sees the quality that is there instead of merely seeing her as a body and a sex object, and therefore he is able to say, well, I would like to have you for my wife, or he begins to treat her with proper respect. But he has a great sexual desire, which probably is at its peak when he's 18 or 20, with some men it may go as long as 25 or 26 years of age. And then it begins a long downhill process toward his older years when he would perhaps have very little sexual desire compared to his younger years, although he still may have considerable sexual desire, and many older men do. But the woman, on the other hand, has her least amount of sexual desire at her younger years, and she will then increase in sexual desire till she's 35, 38, and even sometimes well into her 40s after the menopause, and she will have a long period of time in there in which she has a pretty, for her, whatever her peak is, higher than where she was when she was young. Now, this makes it possible, and that's why many middle-aged couples finally achieve sexual compatibility, because the man has been declining in sexual drive for a number of years, the woman has been increasing in sexual drive for a number of years, and they reach a period of time in there which between, oh, 32, 35, 38, into their 40s, in which there can be a very, very compatible time. Now, after that, the process reverses, and the woman begins a somewhat of a decline for the next 10, 15 years, but not extremely serious. The man, on the other hand, may be losing interest in sex compared to what he was when he was young. Now, here again, that's why the Bible is so clear to say the body of the husband belongs to the wife and the body of the wife belongs to the husband. See? At that young age, the man needs the sex far the more. It is up to the wife to say, my body belongs to my husband. So she gives it to him along with her heart and her life and her love. When they're getting older, the man will have less desire, but not necessarily less capacity to perform, only less interest. But his wife may say, I have need. Then here again, the husband caring for his wife, loving her, wanting to protect her, comfort her, meet her needs. He responds to her need, even though himself may not be very heavily in need at that particular point. Maybe say something about how to the man, although really in the final analysis, this isn't exactly the case, but to the man, sex is more of the moment kind of a thing. The woman, it's a throughout the day type of thing. The affection, the, the caring. I think maybe part of that could come from a woman being um, at home all of the time where a man is out you know, in the world and he's seeing other women not necessarily looking at another woman, but uh, he sees other women, you know, around like, for instance, if he's going to school, he sees other women that are seeking for sex. And being around them all the time, oftentimes he is stimulated towards sex that when he gets home, because of being around other women, his desire for sex is there where a woman being at home where she doesn't uh, necessarily have a driving desire for sex. And thus the man then shows affection to the woman 
her desire is not there. She's not stimulated to even want sex or desire sex. And that would play an important part of a man then showing affection to his wife during the daytime so that when the time for sex comes, whether it's in the daytime or at night or whenever, that the woman then could get into the place that she could enjoy sex. Again, the woman being at home alone, time on her hands, if she had the same driving desire that a man, a man is out in company, he's well protected as long as he's out there. He sees things, they may stimulate him, but if he has any self-control at all, which we're speaking from a Christian point of view, of course he does. There, whereas he may be stimulated from time to time, it is not dangerous simply because he's taken up with the business and affairs and things that he must do. If the woman being left alone many times to herself for long periods of time had the same burning, driving desires, it would create very great problems and it would be much more immorality than presently exists. But God has wisely built these differences to protect the family and the home. And they are very strong protections. Would you discuss a little bit about sexual temptation, how the man is tempted and how the woman is tempted and how these are dealt with? I'll deal from my point of view from the woman's perspective first. It is very important. A woman does not desire just sex. It's the unusual woman. Something is different there in her that makes her desire just casual liaisons of sex. I want a sexual experience. I need another one. Very, very unusual. Even in women that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is not the driving feeling. As a matter of fact, they are turned off by that idea However, the thing that a woman does desire is someone who cares for her. Now, she will actually fall for a line very easily if someone develops a line that makes the woman think she is cared for, for, quote, herself. I am love for me. I am love for my mind or my personality, not just for my body. See, she desires to hear this, that she's not just an object to be used, but someone to be loved. Now, her temptation then comes when her husband does not make her feel she is loved. And so he pays no attention to her, and then along comes someone who, by innuendo and flattery and the gifts and whatever, makes her feel that she is truly a queen that this man, though it's not her husband, he sees her. He looks at her, not just an object for sex, but as a whole personality, and he appreciates and loves her. Very powerful temptation in the woman's life. If she does not strongly have the Word of God in her heart and the Spirit of God in her life, she can be drawn away at moments like this. Now, she does not have to be drawn away even here if her true love is to the Lord and she knows the Lord loves her. See, many times that will be all that she needs and should be for everyone. All that's necessary to sustain her through the most terrible types of temptation. No temptation taking you, such as common to man. God is faithful. Make a way to escape. You may be able to bear it. Now with a the man, there is a different kind of a thing. that It's very important for him to know that he's loved, but he also is more subject to visual imagery, especially when he's young. And all types of visual images are bombarding his mind at all times. His wife then becomes a very real place of protection for him. He needs to be comforted. He needs to be understood by his wife that he is going through this kind of temptation. And she needs to understand life from his perspective just like he needs to understand life from her perspective. He needs to know that in her sight he is a man. He needs to know in her sight that he truly is the head of her home and her king and she's submitted to him. There's something about that that just puts a strength in the man that whereas the visual images are striking and bombarding his mind and stimulating him, 
yet he is able to quite well hold himself in reign, especially, I say once again, if his true and first love is the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. See, there's the built-in safeguard. But his wife needs to be a very present help to him also in understanding his perspective. Visual imagery on the part of the man, the more romantic type of thing of the total person on the part of the woman. The husband needs to understand that and surround the wife with love for herself. Ways that he shows her, I love you as a whole. You're important to me. If she is important to him, unless I say there's something really aberrated in that woman, then very few women will pay hardly any attention to any other man at all. They're so interested in keeping that relationship that they have. In connection with sex, oftentimes a woman, and sometimes a man, if they kind of get upset at the other partner, they will deny each other of sex. But the one thing that the Bible says is to defraud not your partner in sex. Sometimes we hear a lot about sex, but we don't hear so much on that part of a husband or a wife denying the other one because maybe they think, well, I'm going to get even with you by not letting you have sex. Or maybe if I let you have sex, well, then you have to give me something or do what I want or something to be able to have sex. But the Bible says to defraud not each other on sex unless you become tempted And we were speaking about how a husband or a wife can be tempted, and that's one way that either party can be tempted is if the other one denies them of the sex. I think it's an experience of sex that a husband and wife, with the help of God, can really enter into, and it can be a joyful and a pleasant time regardless of what your background in sex is. Some people, Jim was talking about, have had sexual relationship before they were married. And sometimes you think back in comparison to that sexual relationship, because it was a pleasant time, that's all you think about, where sometimes with your husband, it's not really a pleasant time. Maybe it's a time when you have had to give your husband sex and you really didn't desire it or maybe you were tired or something. And so sometimes you look back on sex in comparison and you look back on sex with your husband and you think, oh, it's a miserable time and I dread sex. Where you look back with some other man or some other woman, if it's a man, and you think, well, that was always such a happy time and such a pleasant time. But you've got to realize that no matter who you would have had sex with over a number of times, there would also have been an experience that probably wouldn't have been so enjoyable. And uh, so I think as you go on what the Word of God says, denying not one another, and as you enter into it with the right attitude, even though you may be not enjoying it, yet you realize that you're fulfilling your other partner's need and you're giving to your other partner, which really is what a husband and wife is for, is to give and to meet the need of your companion. And I think as you do that, you're going to find that your attitudes towards sex is going to change and you can enter into it looking forward to it and enjoying sex. That's really what it finally boils down to, doesn't it? They see that it's the desire... See, that's where married life is different than casual lovemaking. The casual lovemaking only depends on the partner getting out of sex what they want. It has nothing to do with what the other person really desires. And then when you come to married relationships, sometimes your mind is still tied up with that kind of experience and it has to come that adjustment to the new experience. That's why when a person is a virgin and they get married, They are not plagued with that. And we just counsel everyone to have no experimentation with sex at all. There's just no place for it. But if you have had, then understand married sex life has to do with giving and serving and loving and caring and protecting as opposed to what do I get out of this for myself. Jim and Daisy now respond to questions commonly asked about sex. What are your beliefs about birth control? Is it right for a man or woman to have their organs altered so as to never have children? 
Today there is pressure from the world to have fewer children and smaller families. I'm amazed at the rationale of my fellow Christians giving reasons of expense, mobility, and other things for having operations so they won't have more children. Yet I think the Bible says the opposite, that children are a blessing from the Lord, and blessed is the man who has his quiver full. What do you think of vasectomies and other sterilizing operations for Christians? What about methods of contraception? How can a couple discern what God's Word says about birth control? Is it right to take into your own hands when you want to have children and how many? Of course, those were a number of questions, but I put them all together in that category because I think you can see how they relate. I cannot give a definitive answer to any of those questions. The reason is simple. The Word of God does not give a definitive answer. So then all of us, to some extent or another, are forced back on our perception of life in the sense of general terms or general principles. Whereas I do not believe it to be a good thing for a person to refuse to have children, yet certainly the admonition, either of the Old Testament places where it is found, perhaps there are more, where it speaks about, blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them, or in Adam's case, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And I think some traditional sources say that he had 67 sons and daughters. Now, none of us today would desire to have 67 sons and daughters because we realize the inability of ourselves to handle that kind of a situation. I say my approach to life, though, has been this. If the Bible says something about the subject, I hearken to the Bible and obey what the Bible says about that subject, put in right context with relationship to the whole Bible. If it does not say anything about that subject, then general moral principles have to take precedence. In the area of birth control, I cannot see anything in Scripture saying, do not do anything to stop children from being born. I realize it's a very controversial area. I am not in favor of abortions uh, to get rid of children. But it seems to me the Word of God very pointedly does not enter into these areas. Therefore, I rather think these things are left then to the individual to seek the face of God and decide what in this case can be right for him in the expedient sense rather than a moral sense. It does not seem to me if it were a moral issue that God would have left the area so completely untouched as he has. Now, birth control is not a modern-day phenomenon. It is merely modern in the sense of the techniques presently used, but birth control has always been used in one form or another. So here we find problems to know how to deal with these issues morally, certainly, If in any sense of the word there is a moral problem that the person is facing with the idea of birth control, then they should not do anything that would defile their conscience. But to also enforce that on others when they have no scriptures by which they really can enforce the idea, that probably is an improper thing. At least it would be from my point of view. What about vasectomies? vasectomy. Same type of problem. Now, if a person is altering their organs so as to never have any children, that does not seem to me to be a right thing based on the general laws of God that the purpose of marriage is to reproduce our kind. So there's a general thing that the world is to go on and we're to reproduce our kind and raise godly children. But now, some women are much more subject to being pregnant than others. Some men seem to be much more potent in those areas than others are. So that a woman will be pregnant every 10, 11, 12 months, another child on the way. Man unable to support this simply does not have faith. Now to insist that they shall go on producing children, I do not see that the scripture makes any point of this whatever. And certainly there were plenty of people in those days that had exactly those types of problems left to themselves. And yet, 
there are ways found to limit the children, whether it was by the method of abstinence or whether it was by the method, for instance, rhythms method had been known for a long time. It was just scientifically codified in these last days. But some form of rhythms has been practiced for many, many thousands of years. And the principle of abstinence, many other methods of attempting to limit families to reasonable sizes. In those days, larger families were much more possible than the present day. As a matter of fact, desirable than in the present day because people lived on farms. It was a primarily an agricultural economy. And therefore, large families could live off the land, plenty of food, didn't have to run around, no place much to go, enjoyable interfamily relationships and neighborhood family relationships. But people were a reasonable distance from each other. And this made a certain amount of sense if you had a large family, because primarily you're talking about merely food. The mother and then the older girls made the clothing. The animals provided the various skins necessary for shoes and various other things. Different kind of thing altogether. But to insist that that is exactly the same today when the Scripture does not make that much of a point of it then, of course, that, once again, I think violates the higher principle here, that if the Scripture does not mention it, God is quite able through his Spirit to direct each man as to what is right in that particular case for him. You said it's not good to alter the body. It's not good to alter the body in the sense of saying, I never want to have any children. But I could not say in my own heart that later in life, let's say, that that man had had several children, that this might not be a proper thing to do under some circumstances. I cannot say it simply because the Word of God does not say it, and therefore I do not know how to answer that. Anything more than I know how to answer a question, is it right to have an operation if you're ill? God provides divine healing. Yet, it happens all the time. There perhaps is a better way, and I think in the case of divine healing there certainly is, but I do not know how to answer that particular question other than the way I've answered it. What the Word of God does not speak on, I do not speak on. What it does speak on, of course, we can speak with tremendous authority. If there are problems in the area of sex, to what extent should the wife try to talk with the husband about them? How do you overcome the uneasiness that surrounds talking about sex? How can a husband and wife come to freely communicate about what they like and do not like in lovemaking? Well, that is not an easy thing to deal with areas of sex. See, there is in our society such a macho attitude on the part of the man. He is a man. And therefore, the woman is supposed to at all times indicate to the man that his sexual prowess, his very presence, is enough to make her desire him at all times. Now, in fact, that is never true, and it's a completely erroneous idea. Also, in the man's mind, because maybe he's grown up watching films or plays or reading books about various nympho, maniacal women who simply are into one bed and out of a bed and into another bed, and he's just constantly desiring sex, no limit to it, which very few such women exist on the face of the earth, and truly they're maniacal in many cases, not always, but most cases. Certainly, if they're jumping in and out of people's beds, they are. But the man has this point of view about his wife, and it's a completely erroneous point of view. It's, she's not that way, he's not that way. Now, here again is the necessity of having a right perspective about sex itself, that it's not the whole of life, it's only a part of life. And here's where a man needs to learn to relate to older men, See, I feel a deep pain in my heart when I think many men are trying to thread their way through life without the benefit of godly counsel from godly men who have been there before them. And women are trying to thread their way through life without the benefit of older women who can teach them how to love their husband and are struggling to find answers when it's very difficult to find those answers by themselves. But someone who has been there said, well, this is not a right attitude, Bill. This is not a right attitude, Sally. This is not correct. Oh, here's the great relief. But now, 
the woman has a right to bring up to the man about sex, but she must be careful how she does it. If she, in her sex talks, indicates to the man by word or deed, whatever the case will be, that he's no real man, or he really is not where it is, or if he puts it out to her, you just don't have any capacity to perform, or you're not meeting my needs, far from that bringing them to a closer understanding, it will drive them ever further away. It's that same type of vicious criticism that I talked about earlier, which produces exactly the opposite result to the one you desire. I think once again, it was like we were bringing out on one of the other tapes, it would not be the criticism of each other in the sex, but it would be the uh, praise of each other in the sex, of talking about what you enjoyed in sex and praising the other person, your companion, in their relationship to you in the period of sex, I think would bring out the fulfillment more in sex than it would to begin to point out all of the time, I mean, pointing out the things in sex that you don't like. Because as you dwell on those things, then you're going to begin to not even want sex or, or despise sex. But if you begin to dwell on the things, once again, that's going back to the godly principle of dwelling on those things that are good and those things, uh, you know, that upbuild you. So I think that would be really a big help rather than coming to your husband and pointing out all of the things. I do think, however, there is a period when a husband and wife could sit down or maybe should sit down and talk about their relationships in the period of sex that you do enjoy and the points that you don't particularly enjoy of bringing them out. But once again, it would be the continue nagging on it or the continue bringing it up and that would be the wrong thing to do. Part of the question is, how do you overcome the uneasiness that surrounds talking about it? It's a very sensitive area where a couple, uh, they're making themselves vulnerable to each other, and uh, there is a lot of uneasiness. How does a couple come to that point where they can talk some of these things out? It's the same principle that's involved overcoming these areas of uncomfortableness as it is when you see in your heart that the way to build your wife in the Lord is for instance to express to her that you love her but in many cases this is an extremely difficult thing for a person to do it is uncomfortable to say the least we worry about how we will come across what the reaction of the person will be and in many cases they're not at all sure what we're mocking them because sometimes the look on our face is so funny we're under strain ourselves it looks like we're, we might be smiling, but we're not really smiling. It almost looks like we're smirking. and uh, So those things have to be worked at until they are not uncomfortable. But in the beginning, in many cases, they are very uncomfortable because of this place. But we simply have found out wherever a person will attempt to keep trying, and here again, the need to be related to people who can help you other than the husband-wife relationship. Trying to thread through it yourself, it can be done, but it's far more difficult than if you're a part of a good, solid body of people where you can receive good counsel. But even there, if it's a husband and wife alone, if they will gently keep speaking to each other, the things will become easier and easier, and then they can finally speak about the things with great freedom. Okay, sometimes my wife and I have difficulty when I want to be romantic and have sex, but she doesn't. When I have a day full of pressure or I'm in a weak place, I like to get close to my wife, I guess, for comfort. When she has had a day like that, she is just the opposite. She wants to go to sleep. It seems like my wife hardly ever desires to be romantic or have sex if she is tired. She doesn't deny herself to me, but she doesn't enjoy it very much. I wonder if there is something wrong with me because I desire my wife sexually more than she desires me. Does my husband think I love him less because I don't feel like making love? Should I leave some of my housework undone and take a nap during the day so I will be energetic enough at night for sex? Strange how so many of these problems 
are summed up in a scripture in the Bible says, For want of knowledge, my people are destroyed. Misunderstandings, because we don't really understand how the other person really is. In other words, we have made quite a study of how we personally feel about something. And we look at life from that point of view. You remember as we dealt with the man-woman problem earlier, the husband-wife problem. We said unless the right perspectives are obtained, then it's very difficult to have a right man-woman relationship. Same thing with raising children, wrong perspectives. We don't see where we're aiming, so we don't understand what to do to raise our children. The same thing is true of the sexual area. Once there's a right perspective that we obtain, then that sense of respect toward our mate causes us to study life from their point of view. Now, I know life from my point of view. I know as a man, I desire sex, and sex is made to be enjoyed, and I enjoy it thoroughly. It's a good and a proper thing. Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, Paul. It makes that very clear, the bed undefiled. So the sleeping together and the sexual relationships are wholly approved by God. But the point is, I know what's necessary for me, but I have not thought about the nature of my wife or the nature of womankind in general. Are their responses really like mine? I have great sexual capacity. Does my wife have the same capacity? I have great sexual drives. Does she really have those same drives? Is it important that she has those same drives? See, I've not thought about that. Now, most of the problems that these questions pose would disappear if we had time to think about the other person's point of view. One, from the man's point of view, I can tell you that he needs sexual relationships with his wife for many, many different reasons. Sometimes it is a pure sexual drive. But much of the time it is not. Much of the time he's been wounded in his work of the day. He is discouraged. He's frightened. He's timid. And he just needs to have his wife's arms around him. And it culminates in a sexual relationship because he becomes stirred and so forth. And that's a proper thing. But he must understand in needing that comfort that his wife does not have to respond to him other than truly loving him caressing him, speaking to him, caring for him. But because he does not understand her nature, the way she responds to the sexual stimulus, that she cannot simply rise to those peaks that some men would desire, maybe all men would desire. She cannot do that. Now, knowing she cannot do that, then we adjust to the idea and allow her to be what she can be. But at the same time, she needs to reach out to her husband and say, now look, it is not necessary for me to rise to these peaks of stimulus, but it is necessary for me to do more than simply lay here and let him use my body as some tool for himself. There is a response pattern that I must have. I must put my arms around him. I must caress him. I must speak to him and tell him that I love him. I must understand his nature, that he needs comfort. Not always the raw sexual drive, but comfort. And to speak to him along those lines, how much she loves him and cares for him and appreciates him as a man and she desires to be near him and with him. See, these things can be done at all times, whether or not the raw sexual stimulus is there or not. And if that is done, then these differences are resolved and a man and wife will find mutual satisfaction in each other. And the man learns that it is not peak sexual experiences that he really desires, but a deep love of which sex is a part of the whole love response. I think the Lord has made women in such a wonderful way that the majority of them can either have sex or let it pass. Most women, now there is some women that has more of a desire than men. Most women do not have the desire or the drive for sex like men have. But yet God has made a woman in a way that even though she doesn't have that 
drive or that desire as strongly as a man, yet she can enter into sex and enjoy sex. I think the question said, should a woman take a nap in the afternoon so she will be rested? I think it would be a good thing. If a woman every night is so tired that she can't enter into sex, a lot of times it's a way of escape, an excuse that a woman is using. Because if it was something that the woman really wanted to do, she would find that she had enough strength. Sometimes a woman uses that as an excuse. And sometimes even without thinking or realizing it, it's to get even with her husband or I'll just show you or various things like that. So like Jim was saying, even though a woman may not reach the peak like a man does or like your husband would like you to, yet I think when you realize the protection that it gives your husband to have sex with him and to let him enjoy your body. It could be a fulfilling um, experience. And so I think God has made a woman that she very quickly usually recovers. I know there is times when a woman is really tired when she goes to bed and she does desire just to go to sleep, but also the scripture says that our body is made for our husbands. And... So I think if we enter into it with the right attitude, so many of these questions go back to your attitude, but I think if we enter into it with the right attitude, that it's not for our enjoyment or it's not what we want, but once again it's to please our husband and that our husband can can get fulfilled, I think that we can grow our strength, that we will be able to enter into sex and fulfill the desires of our husband. That's an amazing thing, too. When the wife has reached out to the husband, and vice versa, although I say in the early part of marriage, and that's where the real problem is, the husband has usually the greater sexual drive, and that's a physical difference between men and women. But if the wife has reached out to the husband in that way and responded to him the best she can, really tries, then when she is really not feeling well or very, very tired, the husband should, and in most cases will, understand that that's the condition and he will let that pass. So he does not need every time that he has a desire for whatever reason, this must be so. But if she has that general giving to him, then he will begin to respond likewise. The husband should always take that initiative anyhow. Say something about how the husband should be treating his wife, that she needs affection throughout the day and not just at the... Yes. Well, you have to understand the nature of affection. See, the point we try to make about sex, it is only a part of the whole process of the life of love. Now, if there is no supportive words, no affection words, no paying of attention, no caring, no caring that you express. And then suddenly when you get in bed, you have a desire for your wife to respond to you. She simply will not do that because she has no mechanism to do that with. It must be a constant supporting throughout the day, as much as you see her and know her, that she understands she is important to you. You care for her. You need her. You are... And we need to tell our wives that. I need you. You're important to me. I love you. I don't want to get along without you. I love to be with you. I enjoy your company. Take a ride with me. I like to be with you. Can I take you to dinner? This is a Oh, I enjoy your presence. When they hear that kind of thing, it is a small step to a satisfying fulfillment in sex. For when they hear none of those things, or very far between, and then suddenly we desire sexual relations. Very difficult, and I'd say almost impossible, for a woman to respond over any long period of time without becoming progressively more turned off to the whole sexual experience. Another question someone posed. Sometimes I feel like our lovemaking gets into a very predictable routine. As a result, it seems kind of boring. How do you keep it from getting this way? You reach 
in your lifetime, depending on whether you're young or older, times where the wife's desire patterns are on the increase. I mean, I'm speaking in terms of a month. There may be two days or so, three, more in some people's case, but many women, a couple of days of sexual peak, it may be a little lesser on either side of that or different times, where they intensely would desire sex or at least thoroughly enjoy it. Now, what we are trying to do in many cases, see, lovemaking does fall into a routine, like all life falls into a routine. We're just built that way. There is no way you try at first when you're first married to experiment with this and that and what will give you a heightened response pattern and so forth. But after a time, I tell you, no matter what methods are tried to produce the heightened sexual response, you're still going to find you cannot beat the way the person themselves is internally made. They just have certain periods where they enjoy sex more and some periods from the woman's point of view and the man's point of view that they just don't enjoy sex as much. And the periods in which you don't enjoy sex as much, you tend to be more routine about it and a matter of fact about it. And then the periods where it's a heightened physical time and psychological time and psychic time even, that uh, you're reaching out to each other, it's a very exciting time and different types of things may take place there and say, oh, that, why can't it always be like that? Simply because we're not built that way. So it isn't always like that. Now, it's the acceptance of that reality that it's not always like that, which then allows you to understand sex being just a part of life, not the whole of life, or even the most important part of life. Therefore, it takes its proper place along with all the other things we do in the love response pattern that makes up the husband-wife relationship. Okay, well, that leads to another question. Are there taboos in lovemaking? What about oral sex? What about other positions? The Bible has virtually nothing to say about sex in the positive sense, except to indicate that it's all right. It has much to say about illicit sex. It speaks about incest. It speaks about sex with animals. It speaks about uncovering your sister's nakedness or your mother's nakedness or your daughter's nakedness, as well as adultery, fornication, immorality of all types. Now, when we come to the principle of oral copulation or oral sex, this is so repugnant to so many people. We have to fall back on another principle, though the Bible does not specifically say this, 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 or the other thing is wrong. We have to be extremely careful here because the Bible tells us to walk in such a way that our life is an example wherever we may go or whatever, or to shun even the appearance of evil. Now, these things are so heavily in the minds of some people, the appearance of evil, that people who practice these things begin to be very careful in their speech toward others, afraid that something is going to slip or someone is going to find out something or they're going to be severely condemned, that frankly, it is not worth doing these things. I personally think that in the long run, what finally happens is you come back to a standard position of sex. You adapt yourself to it and thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy sex greatly myself. And my wife enjoys it in her own way. And there's a rich and deep experience between us. But these things we found, all of them are attempts by people to produce that endlessly heightened sex situation. And it's not worth the candle. Many single people seem to have a problem with masturbation. Is it wrong? How can it be overcome? If a brother comes to you and confesses that he has this problem, how do you counsel him? That's a common problem with men, as you mentioned, single men, especially from a worldly background, because that's where that's usually learned. But it can also happen among Christian young men growing up knowing the Lord and fall into these habits. 
It also is a reality among women, perhaps not as much, but still quite common, quite prevalent. And it is not a good thing. Now, there are some various teachers, not of the Word of God, but teachers of behavioral sciences that state that these things are a good thing and a noble thing and self-releasing and they do all kinds of good things. But I can tell you, most people, it is not a good experience for them. Now, it is a far better thing that a man believe what the Word of God says, and if he has the strong encouragement of an older man or the younger woman has a strong encouragement of an older woman in a godly sense where there's prayer, every man can learn how to possess his vessel in honors, referring to sexual matters there. And the word is possess not find an alternate method of fulfillment, but possess his vessel in honor. But here again, there has to be the strong belief on the part of the man with the problem that God's word is God's word, that he has a deep respect for God, a deep respect for the man he is working with, so that he's open and transparent with that man so he can be guided to that place of safety where he truly does learn how to possess his vessel in honor. Same thing certainly is true of the woman, that she can be set free of these things. Sometimes you have to dig out a mental or spiritual or soulish area, which has gotten completely out of hand here. And the person, of course, is just abusing themselves in an improper way because they're constantly seeing a woman. Let's say from a man's point of view, they're seeing a woman and they're literally committing adultery with her in their hearts. That's why... The use of masturbation is such a bad thing. It is not just simply a release of sexual need or something like that. It is usually fastened to some dream or some person that they are at the present literally committing adultery within their hearts, and they need to be set free from that. And so they need to be counseled with strong older men who can guide them safely through that area out the other side, and they have to give allegiance to that older man to have a real discipleship relationship with that person. It's been pointed out to me on occasion, of course, where does the quality of self-control come in here? Well, of course, self-control is very important. But when we're speaking of the man who has fallen into the habit of masturbation, we're talking about one who does not have self-control. He has, in this area, lost self-control. And that's why I say he needs a strong relationship with an older man who will help him to discipline himself, have the right relationship with God, that he can overcome this extremely bad dream mentality which merely expresses itself in masturbation. But certainly, however, the parent is the one who could do much if the child has been properly trained in his early life to develop properly disciplined habits in his life that child will have very little difficulty getting through the teenage in this particular area because he does have self-control developed. There are many books in print today about sex that seem to set a standard for the more fulfilled sex life, but really sexual fulfillment is a product of your love for each other rather than a matter of techniques. Well, of course, some books on techniques are not entirely improper. As a matter of fact, some are very good because there are techniques in lovemaking or things that need to be understood, foreplay or loving, caressing the woman, kissing her, caring for her, speaking to her, which prepares her. Now, if this is not understood, then sex can become such a painful experience. He's a man, he is more ready for sex almost immediately, although sometimes there's some delay there, but like immediately, or maybe he initiates the sexual experience. And so he's ready in his mind immediately. The wife is not. Maybe in some sense because the man has been cruel or rough or not understanding, she's actually lying there in bed dreading the oncoming experience. And so without the proper preparation, then this sexual experience becomes progressively more painful and therefore at some point may become repugnant to the woman, she becomes frigid or whatever the situation may be. So some books on techniques are proper, but many of them 
try to imply that techniques will produce this ever-increasing sexual fulfillment. And in fact, they will not, because it is not built into the humankind to become totally preoccupied with endless sexual endeavors. There is much more to life than this one area. Now, once again, lest anyone should think that I have some kind of a negative attitude, I do not. I thoroughly enjoy sex, and I have a strong sexual drive, and there is nothing improper about this. It is right in God, the way God has made men or women or whatever situation they come to. That's a proper thing. But on the other hand, I tell you, though I have a strong sexual drive and a fulfilling sex life, it is a small part of my life and not the major preoccupation of my thought patterns. So many of the books that are written, I think, give an improper idea about what sex is able to produce in the life and what various techniques can produce out of a sexual experience. And therefore, it produces even greater frustration when people try these various things. There's a little bit of an increase for a moment, and then the natural wear-off takes place, and the person sinks to an even lower place sometimes. And that, of course, then the person is discouraged and despairing, and then they read another book and try, and pretty soon they're weary with all counsel. Whereas the good, godly counsel of an experienced woman teaching the younger woman how to love her husband, or the godly counsel of older men teaching the man how to love his wife, would have produced a balanced understanding of sex, and therefore a real fulfillment which will last over a lifetime.